So in the text before us tonight, it's in John chapter 5, and we'll take a look beginning at verse 10. You're going to see this contrast between religion and a personal relationship with Christ. So John chapter 5, verse 10, notice how it begins in my translation, perhaps in yours. It begins with the word, therefore. And when you see that word, it obligates you to ask the question, what is the therefore Therefore, and, and, and so you're, you're obligated to back up a little bit to remind yourself of what preceded this statement. And let me just uh, uh, refresh your memory. Uh, the Lord Jesus came upon a place filled with needy and afflicted, hurting people, marginalized people. They were in Israel, but not on the tourist route. But the Lord Jesus, king of above all kings, still condescended so as to be with these people. He singled out one man in particular, as you remember, and asked an unusual question. He said to him, remember what it was? Do you? Remember the question? Do you wish... Yeah, there you go. Do you wish to be made well? And uh, the man made excuses about it. And anyway, uh, the Lord commanded him to stand. The Lord commanded him to do the very thing he was unable to do. And the man was instantly healed. After 38 years, think about it, of immobility, physical impairment, had to be carried on a pallet on a bed from place to place. He was healed. And so that very sensational manifestation of the Lord's healing power took place. And then we read, therefore, the Jews were saying to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. You see, uh, the Lord healed the man on the Sabbath. Therefore, the Jews... Does it say that in your translation, the Jews? Could I tell you something, a little interpretive key? When you read that, read that uh, expression, the Jews, in the Gospels, it's almost always a reference not to the uh, Jews in general, but to the Jewish religious leaders. It's almost always a reference to the establishment leadership in Judaism. And that's the case here, as you will see. So the Jewish religious leaders said to him who was cured... It's the Sabbath. It's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Mm. Why not? Well, God said, do, do no work on the Sabbath. And the rabbis identified carrying things as one of the works prohibited to take place on the Sabbath. Thou shalt not carry. This is what the rabbis Said. Now, where did they get this? Probably from passages like this one in Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 21 and 22. I'll read it to you. Thus says the Lord, take heed for yourselves. Don't carry any load on the Sabbath day or bring anything through the gates of Jerusalem. You shall not bring a load out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work. But keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your forefathers. So the rabbis meaning well, surrounded the holiness of the Sabbath with all kinds of man-made rules and regulations to keep people from crossing the line. Lest they inadvertently violate the Sabbath, the rabbis added to God's commandments numerous things that are not found in Scripture. Now, here's what God did in the Sabbath. God gave the Israelites a day off. So the Sabbath is. God gave the Israelites permission 
And there were slave people at the time. Slaves don't get a day off, but Almighty God said, you do under my regime. And so uh, God essentially said, I want you to take one day out of the seven. It is meant to be a day of rest and worship and rejoicing. And the rabbis, perhaps meaning well, the rabbis so encumbered this day, intended to provide rest and joy, they so encumbered it with rules and regulations, it became a hardship and quite a burden for people. For instance, um, the rabbis came up with 39 categories of work uh, which was forbidden on the Sabbath. 39 categories. And carrying, as I mentioned to you, was one of them. And then they would have discussions and debates, the rabbis would, about how to sort of apply this prohibition. So for instance, the rabbis had a debate over whether a person, I'm not lying here, could put his false teeth in his mouth on the Sabbath. Because that would be a form of carrying, would it not? I mean, you're carrying your, your false teeth. I'm not lying to you. It was a form of prohibited work. Um, the rabbis said, you cannot swat a fly on the Sabbath because that looks like hunting, <clears throat> fly hunting. And you shouldn't be hunting on the Sabbath. I'm not making this stuff up. Uh, the rabbi said, you cannot carry a handkerchief with you on the Sabbath. However, if you tie it to your garment, that's sort of a loophole. You could do that. The rabbis had long debates over whether if you're in the synagogue on the Sabbath and the roof caves in, are you permitted to uh, lift up the stones, mortar, and all the rest that had fallen on people? Could you do that? Because that's a form of carrying and the rabbis, after long debate, you had to debate over this, they decided, yeah, to save a life, you can, you can remove the uh, burdens on a person. Can you see what these perhaps well-intentioned Jewish religious leaders did? And uh, the Lord knew about this, didn't he? I mean, he's all-knowing. He, he knew it was the Sabbath day when he healed this man. Why didn't the Lord tell him to leave his bed behind? Part of the commandment the Lord gave me, the Lord says, stand up, take up your pallet, and walk. Why didn't the Lord just leave, take up your pallet out? Why didn't he just say, leave your bed there? What's the big deal? Or how about this? If the Lord knew all this stuff was uh, part of the Sabbath, and uh, the man would be violating it by carrying his bed on the Sabbath, why didn't the Lord heal him a day earlier or a day later? Did he like lose track of time? Did he, did he forget it was Saturday? I don't think so. I think the Lord deliberately did this. Do you agree with me? I think he deliberately did it. Why? Uh, I think he intended deliberately to challenge the burdensome man-made rules and regulations of rabbinical Judaism. Why? Because the Lord Jesus wanted those people and the Lord Jesus wants these people, us, to be free from all these man-made religious rules and regulations so as to be undistractedly free to enjoy a personal and restful and joyous relationship with him. And look at the insanity of man-made religion. Look, this man had been ill for 38 years. He couldn't do anything. He was dependent on others to get him from point A to point B. 38 years of this, suddenly, he's made well. 
And yet the main concern of the Jewish religious leaders in that day was the violation of their own religion and its traditions. Now, please don't think this tendency is peculiar to Jews. Oh, no, no. Uh, Throughout history, humankind has shown a prideful inclination towards religious strictures just as burdensome and off-base as this. There's something in us that wants uh, the credit for making ourselves right with God. We really don't like the fact that what Jesus did is a done-for-you approach to God and to eternity. We would rather do it ourselves and then we can brag about it. And so, for instance, it's not just Jewish uh, religion who uh, subscribes to all these man-made rules and regulations. Buddhist people, sincere for sure, make recourse to all kinds of unusual rituals and practices, including spinning uh, prayer wheels, many other rituals, in order to attain a state of nirvana. Hindu people are persuaded that there are very unusual, intense forms of meditation are what leads them to salvation. Muslim people are persuaded that uh, they must get their prayer rugs out five times a day in a scheduled way in order to bow towards and pray towards Mecca. In fact, Muslim people, very sincere, fast during the month of Ramadan, during the daylight hours, and do many, many other things, believing these things, man-made, believing these things will increase their chances of getting into heaven. My wife and I honeymooned in Spain. I was a missionary in Europe at the time, and so uh, I was in Germany, so to get to Spain from Germany was just real, real easy. So we decided to honeymoon in Spain. And we took a little tour one day of a place. It was called Montserrat, I think it was called. Serrated Mountain, I think is what that means in Spanish. And uh, there was a long line of people. I mean, a really, really long line. And we got in the line. We didn't know what we were doing until we found out these people had come from all over the world to wait their turn to get up to Um, a statue, small, just about two feet high. It was called the Black Madonna. It was a plaster image of Mary, and uh, it was in a plexiglass case with a hole uh, cut in it so that all the devotees who came from all over the world could put their finger in it and touch the Madonna, this plaster image. Of the, of the Madonna, thinking uh, this is how you please God, this is how you win his favor, this is how you get healed, this is how you get right with God. So, so, so I think what we're seeing in the, in the text here is not peculiar to Jews, it seems to be characteristic of, of human nature. Even some Protestant people, let's bring it home here a little bit, Even some Baptist people believe that their church membership or their affiliation in their Baptist church or their baptism, as meaningful as it is, some Baptist people believe that their Baptist good deeds and church membership is what gets them into heaven. Folks, that is not not true. See, that's all man-made stuff. That's just an unbiblical perspective. But here's the point. No religion can do what Jesus can do. Only faith in him can get us into heaven. And so he said, 
Maybe we'll get there one day. It's all the way down the road in John chapter 14. He said one time, uh, John chapter 14, verse six, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And he said, no one comes to the Father but by me. There's no, it's not through Judaism, Buddhism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, or any, any of the rest. We're not questioning the sincerity of the followers of these religious groups, but I hope our heart breaks and are saddened by the ill-conceived effort to win God's favor uh, by subscribing to all these man-made impositions uh, for which you know there's no basis in the Bible. So you see, it isn't just the rabbinical Judaism of Jesus' day that attempted to do what only he can do. It's every world religion. And the Lord Jesus came specifically to oppose all that. And you know what it ultimately got him? Crucifixion. You know how people say more harm has been done in the name of religion than anything else? I agree with that statement. But that's a far cry than a personal relationship with the living Savior. Uh, an entirely different thing. And so the Lord was ultimately crucified for challenging the religious establishment. And so uh, the Jewish religious leaders on this occasion challenged the man who had been healed, and they challenged him for carrying his bed, his pallet on the Sabbath. And this is his response. You see it in verse 11. He answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, take up your pallet and walk. Uh, Some say he's copping out here. (laughs) Some say this man is shifting the burden of blame. Some say he's saying to the Jewish the hostile Jewish religious leaders, don't blame me. It was some other person who told me to do this. Go after him. Some say he was doing that. I don't know. But uh, whether he was or not, he stated, regardless of the motive, he stated a truth that I don't think you can argue with, and here's the truth. How in the world dare you argue with someone who showed the authority to heal someone sick and impaired, immobilized for 38 years, how in the world do you resist that one who showed the authority over physical disease? Doesn't he have authority and power over the Sabbath? How in the world do you argue with someone who has authority over your physical well-being if that one says, Do not be mastered by the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given to you as a benefit, not as a burden. The man's statement implies to the Jewish religious leadership, if this one could do what your religion has unsuccessfully attempted to do, and that is make this man whole, how do you argue anything with regard to the one who pulled it off? And so they asked him, Verse 12, they asked the man, well, who is the man who said to you, take up your pallet and walk? Don't you think they should have asked, who is the man who healed you? Shouldn't that be the focus of attention? But it isn't in religion. The focus here is who told you to violate our, our laws? Who told you to violate the Sabbath? But I think they know it's Jesus but I think they want this guy's public testimony because then they can use it later for legal purposes against the Lord. Anyway, verse 13, but he who was healed did not know who it was. Can you imagine this? The man is healed, made whole by Jesus after 38 years, but he didn't know who he is. 
He doesn't know who he is. Why? For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. He didn't know who he was. But, verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. Temple. The man who was sick for 38 years gets suddenly healed, and it looks like the first place he went to was the temple. Why? Because it's the first time in 38 years he was permitted to. Because Judaism taught this. If you're afflicted like this, it's because you have divine displeasure. You have sinned. That, therefore, you're sick. And so sickness implied ceremonially, uh, ceremonial defilement, which means you are not permitted to enter into the temple to participate in worship. This man, in the name of religion, was kept from access to Almighty God because they pronounced him to be ceremonially unclean. All of a sudden, he fulfills the prerequisites. He's healed now. That would be a sign of divine favor, and he goes to the temple, probably, hopefully, to express gratitude to Almighty God. Thank you for healing me. And Jesus finds him in the temple and said to him, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse may befall you. Now the Lord's statement here does imply that some sin is what caused this man's ailment. And that's true in some cases, is it not? There are some sinful activities that are the direct cause of physical and emotional pain. Did I ever tell you this story? I was in the military. Well, I'll tell you now. And if, if you heard it, just humor me. I was in the military. This just came to me. I, I was a counselor in a military mental health clinic a million years ago. And uh, a guy came in, and he looked really, really bad. He looked depressed, uh, just in his posture, his countenance, the whole deal. And he had an appointment with one of the social workers there in this clinic, military mental health clinic. After about 45 minutes, the guy comes out. I mean, he's like a bounce in his step. His head is up. He's got a smile on his face. It was like a miracle. So I went in to see this social worker there. After I said, hey, what happened? I want to figure out, what did you do? You're like the best counselor in the history of humankind. I mean, the change is remarkable. I see it non-verbally. But what happened with him? And the guy said, well, he came in and he told me he's been sleeping um, with his next door neighbor's wife for uh, several months. And uh, it's cost him sleepless nights, guilt. He's been quite uh, depressed about it and hasn't been able to eat or anything like that. And I said, what did you say to him? He said, I just told him, don't worry about it. Two consenting adults, you know, you deserve a break today. You're probably someone who's never thought about meeting your own legitimate needs. No problem about it. So the guy gave him permission to sin. And in being permitted to sin, the psychological ramifications of the sin went away. This social worker didn't help him at all. He heard him like crazy. This man told him, you committed no sin, no reason to be guilty about it, and he went out. But my point is, 
Yeah, in his case, sin did cause his emotional illness. Sin was at the root of his depression, sleeplessness, and, and all the rest. So in some cases, we know this, sin is the direct causation of physical and emotional problems. However, not in all cases. If ever we get to John chapter 9, you'll see an episode there where there was a man who had a physical affliction and people said, who sinned, this guy or his family? And the Lord said there, nobody did. So there, that man's physical affliction was not attributable to sin. My point is we gotta be really, really careful when we approach uh, the wounded, needy, and afflicted people in this church and elsewhere. We have to be really, really careful about insinuating that they're in the situation they're in because of their sin, maybe but there's all kinds of other things that could explain their particular malady. At any rate, the Lord tells this man, here's what he does. He tells the man what's true of him now. He says, behold, you have become well. You used to be a certain way, forget about it. Uh, the Lord reaffirms, emphasizes the man's present status. Here it is, you're well. You have become well. All that which used to be true of you, all that which defined you is over. Here's the new definition of your being. You are well. You have become well. This is your, your new status. And the implication is live in light of your new status. Because I have pronounced wellness upon you, don't live anymore like a defiled, ceremonially unclean, sinful, sick person. You have become well. Live that way. And so the Lord says, behold, you have become well. Then he says, do not sin anymore. Now listen, what if the Lord reversed the order of those statements? What if he said, sin no more, and then, I may make you well. That's called religion. Because that plays into our own effort. Do the right things, and when you do the right things sufficiently well, you then have God's favor and a new status in his eyes. That's what all religion does. Religion is a ladder of works and self-effort in an attempt to give us access to an otherwise unapproachably holy God. What Jesus did is entirely different. He's not asking us to climb a ladder of deeds or works. He stooped so as to come to us so that we have access to him. He condescended because we can't make our way up to heaven. So if the Lord reversed the order, if he said, hey, sin no more, I'll grade you, I'll evaluate. And if you pull it off, then I'll make you well. That would be desperately disappointing. But he doesn't say that. First, he reminds the man and you and me if we've accepted Christ. First, he reminds us of our present status. In essence, he says, forget about the past. Forget about who you used to be. You're a new creature in me. You have been made well. In what sense? Our sin-sick relationship with a holy God has been cured. Jesus gave us access. Jesus healed a broken, fractured relationship with Almighty God that not all the religious effort in the world could have done. Only Jesus could do that. He could do what religion can't do. He's a mediator between us, sin-sick 
ones and an otherwise unapproachably holy God because of what he did on the cross, because he was crucified, buried, resurrected, he can bring us to God. And those of us who have taken him at his word by faith said, come into my life, Lord Jesus, forgive my sin, I accept you as my savior. To those of us, he says the same thing he said to this man. Here's your status, don't forget. You have been made well. And then he says the same thing. Therefore, don't live the way you used to live. You know what he says? Don't live a certain way to win my favor. I've given it to you. It's called grace. You have my favor because you've identified with my son with whom I am well pleased. And then he says, just live that way. Just live that When my wife was a little kid, she told me every day when they went off to school, her father would say to her, remember who you are. Remember who you are. He meant the family name. Remember who you are. Live up to your name. You're already in the family. You don't have to work to get in the family. You're already included. You're one of us. You'll never be left out or disregarded. Remember who you are. I think the Lord Jesus is essentially saying that here to this man. Remember who you are. You're not that man anymore. You're not who you used to be. You've been made well. I hope you hear him saying that to you. The past could be so haunting to us. And uh, there's an attempt, I think, by the evil one to drag us back into it. Remember, the Lord is always reminding us of our present state of affairs. You've been made well. Sin no more. So that's essentially what he said. But then he says, uh, don't sin anymore so that nothing worse may befall you. But I ask you a question. What could possibly be worse than 30 years of immobility? Can you imagine? Well, I'll tell you what could be worse. Standing before a consuming fire who is almighty God and having to give an account for our lives lived apart from Christ. That's a worse thing. To be judged by a holy God. There's no defense. That's a worse thing. And so the Lord is saying to this man, if you've really been changed, manifest it in your new life. Because if you gravitate back into sin, maybe we can't find evidence that you're saved and regenerated. And a worse thing even than your physical affliction will be the day you have to stand before almighty God and find yourself to be guilty as charged and there's no acquittal because you have refused the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Well, here's what happened, verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews, remember, Jewish religious leaders, he told the Jews that it was Jesus. Richard used the word Yeshua. Man, I tell you, it almost made me weep. I mean, here's a, here's a Gentile guy from Houston, Texas, speaking Hebrew. My goodness, the language of heaven. Yeshua is Jesus' name in Hebrew. And so the man, he spilled the beans. He told the Jewish, hostile Jewish religious leaders, he said, hey, 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 the one you inquired about, you know, the one who made me well, his name is Jesus. Now, some people say, once again, he's trying to take the heat off himself. And so he's, you know, he's, he's pointing to Jesus. He's telling the Jewish religious leaders, leave me alone. 
You know, I'm just like a pawn in this whole thing. It's Jesus who you want. Look, maybe. I don't know. I don't, I don't know, know what, what the man's motive was. I, 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 I'm not sure. But what I do know is this. Regardless of the man's motives, he told people about Jesus. And that's all that matters. And I want to tell you, in one way or another, God's son will be proclaimed in the earth because that's the Father's will. One way or the other. Now, we have the privilege of that process transpiring through us. Though our motives, even in sharing Christ with others, are never entirely pure. Don't worry about it. Don't wait for your motives, even in sharing Jesus, to be entirely pure. Just share Christ. So I had the uh, privilege the other day of doing so. Uh, um, I met a man from Ecuador, and uh, I, it was a pizza that brought us together. Uh, I ordered it, he delivered it. And uh, I made conversation with him. He was very friendly, and he kind of made a joke. He said, pizza, isn't it great? It just solves all our problems. That's what he said. And I said, yeah, you're right, except, except for one. He said, what? I said, uh, pizza can't resolve our number one problem. He said, what's that? I said, we're separated from the God who made us through sin. And then I told him, this just came to me. I knew he was busy, so I didn't have much time. I had like 40 words. And I told him, hey, let me tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened to me. It's when I realized that God was willing to forgive all my sins through the death of his son, Jesus, on the cross in my place. And I had a great conversation with this great guy from Ecuador. In fact, I invited him to Spanish church over here. Uh, was my motive pure? Nah. Uh, you might say, ah, Stuart, you know, you, you just want to get these 40 words out, you know, another notch on your belt and chalk it up, and then you got something to tell these people on Wednesday night, to which I say, hey, you're right. I don't have a pure motive. But I'm not going to let my imperfections and flaws and the fact that I'm in process of becoming more like Jesus, but I'm not like him yet, I'm not going to let all that keep me from proclaiming Jesus in every way, in every way, Tell them about Christ. It has nothing to do with your merits. If it did, I suppose we, 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 we have to restrict our conversation about him. But it has nothing to do with it. Listen, he made me well. And uh, sometimes I live in light of it, and other times I don't. <clears throat> but by grace, he made me well. And even when I fall back into some of the old ways, in other words, sin... That's no reason not to tell a man from Ecuador <laughs> who doesn't know about you. You know what he said? When I was a boy, I heard about these things and they meant nothing to me in, in my home country. He said in Ecuador, it meant nothing. I was just a kid. It didn't mean anything to me. He said, but now, he was an older man. Uh, he said, I, 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 I think you're right. I, I, and, and we just, it was unbelievable how his whole countenance changed. He was all ears. Even though the message came through uh, a very imperfect imper guy. Um, yeah, I couldn't wait to get here Wednesday night to tell you about that. Yeah, uh, that's right. Pure motive? Probably not. 
It doesn't matter. The, this man's motive in here was probably, not, was probably not pure, but he named the name of Jesus in the presence of hostile Jewish religious leaders because the expression of this, this message is the power therein is not his at all. Don't you know the Bible says uh, the gospel is the power of God, the power of God. And God's power could be manifested even through impaired, weak ones with impure motives like us. Do what Bobby McCain did in Bulgaria, but do it here. Do it what Christine, Richard, and Tony, and Katya, and Linda, Mike, Jonathan did in Israel. Do what I did in Pearland, Texas the other day. By the way, the pizza was really good, let me tell you. Um, Tell people about Jesus, leave the results to God because their religion, whatever it is, cannot do for them what only Jesus, what only Jesus could do. I hope you've come having a personal relationship with him. But more than that, I hope you don't leave without establishing that personal relationship. And it's so easy to do so, it's difficult for those of us who are proud people. <clears throat> Jesus suffered and died for our sins. That's what keeps us from God. He rose up from death, showing victory over it all. And he invites us on his merits, meaning he paid the penalty for our sin. He invites us to benefit from it, but he won't force it on us. He invites us to invite him to forgive us, to come into our life, to resolve the conflict we otherwise have with a holy God, and to be considered as well sons and daughters of God, not as ceremonially unclean, separated adversaries and strangers. And it all boils down to this. It's not about... <laughs> whether you put your false teeth in on, <laughs> on the Sabbath, whether you use Buddhist prayer wheels or engage in meditation or fast during Ramadan, none of those things can do what Jesus can do. He can bridge the gap between sinful man and holy God. I hope before you leave tonight, you've taken advantage of the inexpressible gift of salvation offered by your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you would like to visit that conversation with some of our finest people, before you leave tonight, we're gonna to give you a few minutes later when we dismiss to be with them in a room right behind us called the Connection Center. They'll talk with you, they'll pray with you. Wouldn't it be great to leave uh, knowing uh, of this pronouncement upon you, you have become well, live differently now. Lord Jesus, I pray by your grace and power that movement from separation to reconciliation, from spiritual impairment to spiritual health and well-being, I pray that would take place in the life or lives of any here tonight who have not yet accepted you as personal Savior. Thank you for being for us today exactly as you were with this man 2,000 years ago. And thank you for using ones as 
limited and imperfect as us to represent you on the earth. Thank you for these who we've heard from earlier who've done that very, very thing and have borne fruit in your name. Make us all to be just like them. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.